Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you can open to Luke, Luke chapter 16. We're going to take verses uh, 1 through 15. Luke chapter 16. We're in a section where Jesus has been telling parables. And uh, we've just looked at the parable of the two sons. And uh, now we're going to look at the parable of the dishonest manager. He also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking away the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do. So that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly, write 50. And he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you've not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for he'll either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Father, as we look at your word and we look at the teaching from the greatest teacher there ever was, from the greatest storyteller, the greatest uh, speaker of parables that have deep spiritual meaning. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would enlighten our eyes 
to see what your word says. And Father, I pray for soft hearts, hearts that will honestly take an accounting of where they're at. Father, I pray that we all would be humble, that you would give us perspective this morning. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. What do you think about the future? What do you think about the future? That might seem at first glance a random question. Because I could ask you, what do you think about a thousand different things? And yet, this question is one of the most important questions we could ever be asked. And here's why. Paul Tripp teaches in his biblical counseling training that everyone lives according to their perception of reality, not according to reality. So the decisions of your life are made according to your perception of what is real, not according to reality itself, which is why it is so incredibly important for Christians to have their reality, their perspective set not by the world, not by their own hearts, but by God himself. The Bible talks about the future. The Bible gives us promises about the future, gives us guarantees about the future. That's the glorious thing about Yahweh. No other God knows what's coming, but our God does. And he tells us what is to come. The reason why it's so important for us to have our perspective shaped by Scripture is because your whole entire life will be lived out of whatever reality is in your mind. In Proverbs 4.23, Solomon says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. There's nothing more important you can do in your life than to guard your heart, and you're supposed to do it with all vigilance, for your whole life flows out of your heart. And if you read that verse in its context, and you were to ask the question, what does it mean to guard my heart? Because if I'm supposed to do this with all that I have, what does it mean to do it? What you would find is the way you guard your heart is you live by faith according to what God's Word says. So you have to know what God says in order to live by faith according to that. And it's the most important thing you'll ever do because your entire life flows out of your perception of what's true. Let me give you a couple examples. 
a stay-at-home mom who believes her mundane week is relatively insignificant, the getting the kids ready, getting the meals ready, buying the groceries, cleaning the house, vacuuming, getting the kids to where they need to go, all the things that just happen normal every, every day. The mom who believes that that week in that life is insignificant, that believes that no one cares, no one appreciates it, no one notices the normal weekly tasks, will be tempted to despair, bitterness, laziness, depression, because lies have shaped reality, perception. If that stay-at-home mom were to read in her devotions, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, that says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, you could never say that that week is insignificant. There is no labor done for the glory of God that is in vain, ever. But it's easy to let a different reality take control of our thinking. And it affects everything about our actions and our attitudes. A dad who works hard all week, believes he's not appreciated or respected, might be tempted to feel sorry for himself and escape into some sort of fantasy. Whether it's fantasy football, whether it's pornography, where the woman on the screen is full on in tune to you and appreciates you. Or a dad who works hard all week, feels not respected, feels insignificant, might lose himself in movies where some character has some important task that they're going to accomplish. And yet, if that father were to remember 2 Corinthians 5, 9, where Paul says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Paul says, whether I'm in heaven or I'm on earth, the purpose of my life is to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may re receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You see, that sort of reality, the fact that every moment of my life, I will give an account to, as a Christian, to Christ, shapes what that father will do or won't do. One of Satan's greatest lies 
And one of the greatest deceptions of the human heart, without Satan, the human heart would still go astray. You know that, right? (laughs) That's why we can't blame everything on Satan. But Satan lies, and the human heart deceives itself. But one of the greatest lies and deceptions of the human heart that leads to unfaithful servant service to Christ is that which regards the future. It's a lie about the future that determines the faithfulness of a Christian or not. It's a lie that involves heaven, that involves the kingdom of God. And the lie that we believe goes something like this. I am sincerely trusting Christ. And since I'm sincerely trusting Christ, my future is secure in Him. See, the trickiness with every lie is there's so much truth in it, right? Have I said anything that isn't true so far? That's all true. I'm sincerely trusting Christ, and since my future is secure in Him... For you're not saved by works, but by grace. It doesn't really matter what I do here on earth with my money. Heaven is heaven, and rewards are just confusing. So the lie goes, well, you're not saved by works. And it doesn't really matter what I do today. With my money, money's not going to be in heaven. It's a lie about the future. It starts with the truth and then deceives us. It's hyper-Calvinism. You say, what's that? It's the understanding that God is sovereign over all things, which is true. But what hyper-Calvinists do is they say, since God is sovereign over everything and every event, it doesn't matter what I do with my life. And that's a lie. That is not what Scripture teaches. The Scripture teaches human responsibility and the fact that all of us are going to give an account to Christ for what we do in the body. Now, there's two very important points I want to make at the front end of this sermon so that you don't hear it wrongly. The first one is this. The grounds of your salvation, listen carefully, the grounds of your salvation is and only ever will be Christ. His righteousness, His death on your behalf, and His life in your place. God will never say, I let you in because of something you did. The grounds of your salvation only will ever be Christ's perfect life in your place. The only reason any of us will enter heaven is because we realize nothing I do can earn a place before God, earn my place before God. It's only Jesus' perfect life given as a gift to me when I trusted in Him as my only hope 
that it will be the grounds of my salvation. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this. But you will give an accounting to him for your life as a Christian. How you managed all that Christ has given to you, and there will be an accounting for it. And there is an eternal significance to what you do or don't do. Your future in heaven will be different depending on how you lived. That's the truth. That's what Jesus taught consistently. That's what Paul taught consistently. Now just think for a moment. Have you been living tempted to believe the first thing that yes, Christ is my only hope of salvation, but started to believe a lie that therefore it doesn't matter what I do with my life. You see, the Christians accounting to Christ is not whether or not they get into heaven. The Christians accounting to Christ is how faithful they were with their new birth and with all that Christ gave them for his glory or for not. That which is for his glory will be rewarded eternally. So, this text, we could think about time, we could think about all sorts of things, relationships. This text is about money. A third of Jesus' parables were about money. Was Jesus obsessed with money? No. He was obsessed with the human heart. And it's with money, maybe more than any other thing, that the human heart is exposed. And so he tells this parable. The way I designed the sermon notes, what I, what I think we get out of this text, the first eight verses are the parable. Then we get Jesus' response to the parable and some teaching. And then after that, we're going to see how the Pharisees responded to the teaching. But I think we can ask six personal diagnostic questions regarding your heart as it pertains to money. Now, you might hear that and say, oh, why can't this be some other type of sermon? This is God's grace to us. These are opportunities to have the Holy Spirit through God's Word help us see reality. And reality may be scary if it exposes sin, but it ought not be for the Christian because we have a Redeemer that died for sinners who can repent and ask Christ for help to grow in greater faithfulness. So I would say lean in with a smile and with an honest heart, a willing heart. Let's look at the parable. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. This was very common in Jesus' day. Any rich man that had a big estate would have a manager. 
And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. Now, there's no sign at this point in time that this manager had done anything sinful. He may have just not been very smart, not a good manager. He's not called dishonest at this point in the parable. There's just been word brought to the master that the manager is wasting his possessions. And he, the manager, called him and said, or or the owner called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. So he's fired, but there's one last task to be done. Turn in the books. There's going to be an accounting for how well you've managed. The manager said to himself, what shall I do? That's a good question. That's a good question. What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. He's in a predicament. He knows a future accounting's accounting's coming that's going to affect his future. The question I ask in your first notes, am I considering the reality that I'll give an account to Christ as his money manager? Are you asking the question, what shall I do? That's where it all starts. You understand something about the future that causes you to ask the question, what shall I do? Which is where you have to start. So the first diagnostic question for yourself is, have you been asking the question, what shall I do with my money? That's the topic of the parable. And then the second question to ask is, am I employing a wise investment plan that will ensure a good future. Let's look, see this in verse 4. So the manager asks the question, what shall I do? And then he says, I've decided what to do. There's a plan. He thought about it. And now there's a plan. There's a decision. There's a decisive moment forward. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. He's made a plan that will ensure a good future. He asked the question. He got a plan together. And now he has the motivation to act upon it. He wants to be received into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors, here's the plan. 
One by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil, which is 875 pounds of probably olive oil. It's a lot of olive oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do I owe you? Or do you owe? He said, 100 measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill, write 80. 50% discount on the first guy. 20% discount on the second guy. And what's the purpose of the plan? That he'll be received into their houses after he gets fired. It's a plan that ensures a good future for him. Right? And now the shocker. This is how Jesus' parables go. You, you tend to think at the beginning of Jesus' parables, oh, I already know what the punchline's going to be. But often Jesus shocks us, makes us scratch our head, and that's where the point of the parable comes to light. Look at what he says in verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. You got to read that sentence carefully. This might be one of the most argued about parables. People get really uncomfortable at this point. At the beginning of the parable, you think the point is, don't waste your master's money. That's true. That's a true point. But that's not the point Jesus is striking at directly. The master commended the dishonest manager. Here's where we find out. Here's where he's called dishonest. For his dishonesty, that's not what it says, for his shrewdness. You misinterpret the parable if you think God commends dishonesty. That is not the point. Is this man dishonest? Yes. How do we know? Because Jesus tells us, he made up the story. He tells us he was dishonest. There's, there's so many commentators that get uncomfortable with Jesus' surprising ending. They try to say, well, actually, the reason why he was praised is he just cut his own commission out so that the master could get all of his money, but he cut his own commission. Wrong. Those are commentators trying to make this man not dishonest. But then you got a textual problem because Jesus said he was dishonest. You see, he wasn't looking out for his master when he lowered the bill. He was looking out for his own future. But his master, also having a heart that evidently can rejoice in evil, says, that was shrewd. I got to commend that. I got to commend what you did. You really looked out for yourself. I should have fired you on the spot and taken the books, but you got me. 
In that culture, if you do a favor for someone in Jewish culture, it's owed back to you. He guaranteed a house to live in. They owed him. And what does Jesus say then? For the sons of this world are more shrewd. What shrewd mean? It's the word in Greek, phronimos. Here's what the lexicon says about this word. It can be translated prudently. Pertaining to understanding resulting from insight and wisdom. So someone who acts this way acts wisely with understanding, with insight. And Jesus says, for the sons of this world are more prudent or more wise in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Jesus has perfect perspective. He knows what's important. He knows what the kingdom of God looks like in the future. And he says, the lost sons of this world are more prudent about taking care of their short time on this earth than the Christians are preparing for themselves an eternal dwelling with reward. From Jesus' perspective, this is craziness. The shrewdness, the, the wisdom, the drive, the, the prudence to make sure that my life's going to go good that last 10 years before I die. Jesus said, even those that are the sons of light, they don't think about the future like that. They don't believe in the future that much. Not to the point where it affects what they do with their money and with their time. Robert Stein says he's commended for acting and preparing himself for the judgment awaiting him. He is commended essentially for being a shrewd scoundrel taking care of his future. So it's not to say that the dishonesty is right, but is prudence to look out for his future. How does Satan's lie go? Ah, don't worry about the future. You're sincerely trusting Christ. Doesn't matter what you do. What you do has no impact on your future. That's a lie. And Jesus is exposing that lie in this parable. John MacArthur says this, in relation to others, Jesus exhorted his hearers to make friends for themselves by means of un, or by the means of wealth of unrighteousness. Look at, look at verse 9. Here's what Jesus tells them to do. Here's the action. Here's the main point of the parable. And I tell you, make friends for yourself yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. What's unrighteous wealth? That's money. Why, is it, why, why does he use that term? Because this world's unrighteous. Money's going to pass away with this world. He calls it unrighteous wealth. And what Jesus is saying then is make friends for yourself with money so that when it fails, when, when money fails to be effective, they may receive you into eternal 
dwellings. Jesus is simply saying, use your money in a way on this earth so that when Christ returns and money means nothing, that money purchased friends for you in heaven. It's Jesus' way of saying, invest your money in evangelism. You say, well, I'm already going to heaven. I don't care. I don't have to think about the future. Yeah, but there's great reward. There's great joy to see how your money that could not last on this earth affected eternity. Great reward. Great joy. And Jesus tells us ahead of time. Specifically, what to do. So John MacArthur writes, unbelievers, unlike the unrighteous manager, are like the unrighteous manager, often use money to buy earthly friends. Believers, on the other hand, are to use money to evangelize and thus purchase heavenly friends. The wealth of unrighteousness, being an element of the fallen society's experience, cannot last past this present life. When it fails, the friends of believers have have gained through the investing in the gospel preaching will welcome them into eternal dwellings of heaven. Those friends will be waiting to receive them when they arrive in glory because through their financial sacrifice for reaching the unconverted, they have heard and believed the gospel, close quote point of the sermon is this. Use your money to purchase friends you will have in eternity. The only way you get friends in eternity is to use your money to the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 6, what did Paul tell Timothy? As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Why does he do that? The rich are tempted to pride. Tempted, what do haughty people do? They look down on others. Charge the rich not to do that. Look down on others, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share. Now get this. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Think about money. Use money. Share your money in such a way that causes you to grab hold of what truly matters. It's a good foundation for the future. The best investments in the world are the ones that never go away. Paul taught it. Jesus taught it over and over and over again. And yet, it's hard for us to think right about the future. It's easy for us to only see this day, or this week, or this year, or up into my retirement. 
And so the third test is this. Am I prudently striving to use my money to make friends for myself in the future or in heaven? And the key word is what? The word shrewd or prudent. Are you with prudence planning and unleashing your plan so that that will happen? Fourth question is this. Am I being faithful in the very little now? Jesus' wisdom is uncanny here. Listen to this. The one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. The one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you've not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth with money, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another's, who will give you that which is your own? If I ask you the question, if someone gave you a million dollars today, what would you do with it? How much would you give towards the gospel? You might say, man, that's a tough question. Jesus says, no, it's not. That little tiny bit you have now, what are you doing with it? Because those who just have a little tiny bit and are faithful with a little, if they had a lot, will be faithful with a lot. And those who are faithful with a very little will be faithful with a lot. It's a fact. Because giving does not have to do with your circumstances. It has to do with your heart. It's a sobering test asking the question, am I being faithful with a little? Here's what John MacArthur says on this, just so helpful here. Some claim that if they had more money, they would give more. But the truth is that character, not circumstances, determines faithfulness. Some, like the poor widow described in Luke 21, 1 through 4, who have nothing, give everything. Others who have everything, give nothing. The issue is not finances, but integrity and spiritual character. Those who are faithful with the very little they have would be faithful if they had more. Those who are unrighteous, selfish, proud, indulgent in the use of the very little that they have would be so also if they had much. The determining factor is not how much people possess, but how strong their commitment to the gospel of salvation is. So courageously and honestly, ask yourself the question, have I been faithful with the little bit that I have? Which brings us to the fifth question. Am I believing I can serve two masters? Look at verse 13. Jesus teaches, no one can serve two masters. For he'll, he'll, he'll either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Now, this might not, to our modern culture, this might seem weird. But in Jesus' day, it was just an obvious fact. If you're a slave, the word is doulos. 
If that man owns you, that man doesn't own you. You can't be the slave of two masters. It's one or the other. And so the human heart can't kind of love money and love God at the same time. Now, do Christians fluctuate back and forth? You bet they do. But it's not gray. It's black and it's white. He says, you can't serve two masters. It reminds me of James talking about the double-minded man. James 1.5, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded and unstable in all of his ways. It's, God, I'm trying to do your kingdom, but I really love my money and my wealth. Jesus says, that's not a way to live you can't do that. In James 4.8, he says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Those who are trying to hold both. That's why Jesus calls at the front end for your life, right? He who will follow me, deny yourself, give up. That's when the excitement starts. You're freed from the world's system from the greed of your own heart. And then the sixth question is this, am I being tempted right now to ridicule or find a way out of Jesus's teaching on money? <laughs> and this question is asked like this, right now, at the end of this sermon, what is your heart doing? Be honest with yourself. Are you scheming? Are you trying to twist the parable so it doesn't mean what it clearly means? Do you want to ridicule the parable and the teaching? Look at verse 14. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. One of the tests of whether or not you love money more than God is how you feel at the end of Jesus' parable. What did Jesus say to them? You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in God's sight. So if that's you, and if the Holy Spirit's allowed you to be honest enough about what your heart's doing, praise God. And here's something to kill your, your twisting and to kill your ridicule. Here it is. Jesus gave it to you. God knows your heart. You can fool people, and we do it all the time. The world will rejoice with someone who's fooled people, but God knows your hearts. God knows. And if God knows, then the only option is this. Repentance 
and turn to Christ and ask Christ to help you to be a faithful steward of his money so that when your day comes to die, when your day comes to stand before the master, it'll be a good day. None of us are perfect. Christians have been more faithful or less faithful. There's a spectrum. There's only one perfect man, Christ. But what you and I do with this, what Jesus called unrighteous wealth, money, will determine our future in heaven. What it'll be like. The capacity for joy in heaven. You remember a few weeks ago, we looked at a few months ago, Matthew 6, 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. MacArthur concludes with this. He says, where they invest their money reveals where the people's hearts are. Endless personal accumulation is sinful, wasteful, and robs those who pursue it of eternal blessing. So my challenge is this, to write a yes or a no on every one of those questions. If you answer the first four questions, yes, or I mean, yeah, if you answer the first four questions, yes, and the last two, no, praise God. You're a mature believer who has learned much in separating your heart from the things of this world. And we have those who are further along in maturity than others. And if you answer the first four yes, or I mean, let's see. If you answer the first four no and the last two yes, I have good news for you. Christ is a gracious redeemer. And here's the exciting thing. God is so gracious to you that your last days have not come before Christ taught you this parable. Which means there's time by the grace of God to be more faithful this week than last week. And that is the grace of God. Well, what a wonderful thing. How many people die never understanding this parable? We'll end up in heaven, but with regret that they could have been more faithful to Christ. And I'll tell you, this is convicting for my heart. This is a parable that I had to look in and didn't always like what I saw. But thank God for opportunity. Let us encourage each other. Let us encourage each other 
in faithfulness because joy comes when we're faithful to Christ. Joy comes when we're obedient to His Word. And so, before we sing our last song, I'm going to have David play a, a song. Dreamed I went to heaven and you were there with me We walked upon the streets of gold Beside the crystal sea We heard the angels singing And someone called your name We turned and saw this young man And he was smiling as he came and he said, friend, you may not know me now And then he said, but wait You used to teach my Sunday school When I was only eight And every week you would say a prayer Before the class would start And one day when you said that prayer I asked Jesus in my heart Thank you For giving to the Lord I have a life That was changed Thank you For giving to the Lord I am so Another man stood before you and said, remember the time A missionary came to your church and his pictures made you cry You didn't have much money, but you gave it anyway Jesus took the gift you gave and that's why I'm here today Forgiving to the Lord I am a life that was changed Thank you for giving to the Lord I am so glad you gave One by one they came as the eye could see Each life somehow touched By your generosity Little things that you had done Sacrifices made Unnoticed on the earth In heaven now proclaimed And I know in heaven you're not supposed to cry but I am almost sure there were tears in your eyes as Jesus took your hand and you stood before the Lord 
He said, my child, look around you For great is your reward Thank you for giving to the Lord For I have a life that was changed That song was written and sung by Ray Bolts, who now is no longer walking in biblical Christianity. He's denied scripture with his lifestyle, which is a warning in, its, in and of itself that someone who understood scripture, understood the text we just looked at, put it into song form. So let that just be a uh, drive for us to stay faithful. But two, what could be better? That we could use this stuff and that souls for all eternity can be affected. And Jesus says, that's what the sons of light ought to be scheming and, and being prudent to do. And to have that picture where you'll stand before Christ. The fact that he'll say, well done, is amazing because all of us have a, probably a D plus in what we would hope of how we've done it with our life. But he will reward whatever ways we were faithful to him. And so to have the future, eternity, written In our eyes. Baxter said, every preacher should have eternity on the back of his eyelids. He should see two people, two sets of people in this congregation, those burning in hell and those so glorious that they shine brighter than the angels. Future must be clear for us as Christians. Father, I pray that we would view this world the way you say it is, not in the way that seems real to us. Father, it takes faith to believe these things that Jesus taught. We can't see it. We can't 
understand everything there is to know about the reward for faithfulness. But Lord, let us walk by faith. Trust your word more than what just seems or feels true to us. We thank you for your word. Now, Lord, give us the joy of faithfulness. Pray this in Christ's name.